Would you grab your Bibles and turn to Acts 16 for a moment? We've been walking verse by verse through Jude, and we're going to take a break on that until next week. Um, the theme for Disciple Now this weekend didn't fit with uh, the Archangel Michael and Satan fighting over Moses' body. It just didn't fit real well. And so it's a fascinating text. We'll get to Jude 8 through 10 next week. But after just knowing what the students were going to study this weekend, I wanted to do something in line with that. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. So beginning in verse 1 of Acts 16. So Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through those cities, and they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And when they had went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. These are the six overarching statements, that six truths that we talked about this weekend. So the students spent the weekend walking through aspects of the book of Ephesians. And coming out of that, the theme was um, um, so much more connected to Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20, which talks about God is able to do more, uh, exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask and imagine. And so there were kind of six themes that ran through all of this. And we're going to see two men today that these six themes were true in their lives. So the first thing that we saw was that God has us. We, we are kept by God. God is the one who has brought us into relationship with Him. Not only that, that one of the great realities that because God has us is that God delights in us. There's, there's an aspect of God whose love for us is so strong that He delights in His children and He delights in those whom He has redeemed. And in light of God keeping us, holding us, delighting in us, He now is going to empower us to be able to live our faith in such a way to be effective in ministry in and around us. And so last night we looked at three more, and this one was that you are an essential part of God's plan, that for each of us who have a relationship with Christ, then God is at work and God is doing a work in in this that that he's got a plan for us to be used in his kingdom. In light of that, as we see these two men today, they're going to kind of possibly see themselves alone, but they're not alone. Because God has done all of this great work, we are never, ever alone. God is always present with us. The Spirit resides in us. The Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. And so we have this great hope in this reality that we are, as His people, never alone, no matter what comes our way. And lastly, we will see in these two guys today that our lives have tremendous, endless possibilities and potential when we yield our lives to Christ. So those were the themes this weekend. We're going to see three pictures today of salvation. We're going to end up at a place called Philippi. We've got a book in the New Testament called Philippians. And we're going to see the story today. We're going to see a woman named Lydia where God opens her heart. We're going to see a demon-possessed girl who likely also comes to faith. And also we will see um, a jailer in his entire house. So in Acts chapter 16, we read it a while ago, Paul tries to go two different places 
And I love what it says there, that the Spirit of Jesus said, no, you're not going to come here. He wanted to go to another place and said, no, you're not going to come here. And during the night, Paul has a vision where a man on the continent of Europe, Macedonia is Greece, so we're now seeing the gospel about to enter into the continent of Europe. And the man from Macedonia is saying, come and help us. And Paul gets up in the morning and is like, okay, this is a word from the Lord and we're going to go and we're going to take the gospel there. And so they began to go there. And it's interesting, is it not, that sometimes the Spirit of God will say, no, don't go to that place and share the gospel. I want you to go someplace else. And so Paul, wanting to follow what the Lord wanted him, ends up exactly where he needs to be. And so we see in verse 9 there that a vision appeared to Paul in the night and a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him to say, come over to Macedonia and help us. So today I'm going to talk about what does a worshiper of Jesus look like? Now, if we're not careful in our modern times, we have defined worship only by what we just did a few minutes ago. That worship is just about singing. Worship is, singing is just one part about worship. So there is much more to that. Worship literally is this. It is our whole life living, being devoted to God, where there is a desire for obedience that dominates the Christ follower to live in a way to exalt Jesus in every kind of way, in every aspect of our lives. So sometimes that is um, clearing out a forest. The high school guys, we cleared out a forest yesterday. I have cuts all over my body from vines as proof of that. Um, Doctored myself all up this morning. And so sometimes... We glorify Him by doing that. Sometimes we glorify Him by sitting down with a co-worker or a teammate or a neighbor and sharing the gospel with them. And so God has this mandate upon our life and this call upon our life that we would in every way we live in a way to, to honor Him with every part of our lives. And so I want to talk about what that looks like today. So I want to kind of show you where this is. I think, what's next? I think we've got a map. So you can kind of see a little bit kind of where this is. So this is how the gospel um, in Acts chapter 16 gets to, to Europe. And uh, if you were to get to the city of Philippi, you would come by seaport. If you came by that, most people did. You would land at a place called Neapolis. You would get there. You would go in about 8 to 10 miles in there. There's a mountain that was there. You would go through Neapolis, and then there, at the, there's a mountain, and at the bottom of that mountain in the valley is the city of Philippi. If you came from the east going into Europe, you would cross through that region. And so Philippi was a very thriving place where a lot of economic things took place and happened, and it was also a very important city uh, to the Roman Empire. But that will kind of give you an idea where that is. It was founded by a guy named Philip of Macedon. He was a Macedonian, and he um, conquered the Thracian people, and then he renamed the city after himself. That's what you do, you know, if you capture a city, you rename it after yourself. And then when the Romans came in and they took over, they kept the name that he had named it after his name Philip, and it became Philippi, a very important part um, of their lives and, and an important part in the Roman Empire. So I want to ask you now, if you would, um, look with me in verse 11. So here's how they got there. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day, Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained there in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day... We went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what, Paul, to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well... She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now look at verse 16. So as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination 
and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So I want to talk just for a moment and walk through some principles as we begin to learn here. What is the life of a worshiper, a persevering worshiper? What does it look like? And the first thing I want to see this morning is that a persevering worshiper is someone who practices worship, surprisingly. That's what they do. They live their lives in obedience, loving God in every kind of way, desiring to be obedient to them. And so verse 16 tells us this, that after Lydia has come to faith in her household, they are likely continuing to meet and stay in Lydia's house. This would be Timothy and Silas and Paul and Luke. And so you've got probably, possibly one of the greatest mission teams ever. A week from today, four of us from the church are going to the Middle East. We have a good missionary team that's going, but I don't know if it can compare to those four um, that we're reading in the text here. And so they're there. So they go to the river to pray and going to a place of prayer. Now here's what we probably learned from this, from the instance with Lydia and what we learned in verse 16. You couldn't have a synagogue in any of the cities of the world unless you had at least 10 Jewish men. So in Philippi, there was no synagogue. So there's probably a very small contingency of Jews. And so what they would do is this, is if there wasn't enough men to have a synagogue, the Jews that lived in the city would go to a, most likely a river that ran through the city, and they would gather there for prayer. So as Paul arrives... That's the first place they go. They probably get into the city, ask if there's a synagogue or not. There's not one. So they go to the river that's connected near Philippi there and try to find out, are there any people there? Well, they find out that Lydia is there. And Paul is sharing and teaching. And she, God opens her heart. She listens. She comes to faith. And now her household has come to faith. And now they are beginning to practice um, what Christians should do. And that is to gather together to worship the Lord, and to pray together, and to be in fellowship together. So a church has started with the four missionaries and Lydia and her household. And they are beginning to pray. They are beginning to gather together. When you look closely at the Bible, the practice of a biblical worshiper is this. One of the things is they gather consistently with other believers to worship, to pray, to study, to sing, to fellowship, to share the gospel. Why is this to be a practice in our lives? Well, one of the main reasons is Jesus practiced this. Did you know that? He didn't just like, well, it's Friday. Should I go to the synagogue or not? No, Jesus came. Being the eternal Son of God, He practiced consistent gathering together. Listen to what this says. This is Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Guess what the followers of Jesus did when he ascended and went to heaven and they began to start the church. They consistently did this. So deep into the second missionary journey of Paul, a chapter later from Acts chapter 16, this is what we learn. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Here's the reality. And we learn this from Acts 16. God's people gather together on a consistent basis because they know this and they need to know this. So listen. We practice this. And as we practice this, we, we talked, Mark talked about this last night. Look around the room this morning. We are not alone in our faith. Look at the people in this room. And so when we practice worshiping and gathering, we are reminded that our faith is not one that we just live of ourselves, but we need a community of believers to be connected with us. Now, Becca, would you put the next picture up here? 
This is in the Philippines where Typhoon, Typhoon had come through and they had not been able to worship together because of the water. And I want you to look at that. There's another picture I couldn't, it wasn't real clear, where the building is literally filled with people. Look at that. The water is all the way up to the pews. This is commitment to gather together with God's people. You know what pastors in the West do when it rains on a Sunday morning? We wonder which of you are going to show up because you might get wet walking into the building. So Paul starts this church. They begin to gather together and they practice this. You see, this is an important thing for us. We are to gather together and consider as we gather together um, to do this in a way that we would encourage one another, to stir one another up, to live for God, to worship God, and to do good works. Now, here's the point of this. If we are to come and stir one another up, guess how we get to be stirred? We have to come to let other people stir us up and remind us of the importance of walking with Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews says those words, let us consider how to stir one another up and be stirred up is implied there to love one another and to do, do good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And especially he says here, all the more as you see the day that is approaching. So what happens now is they're, they're on their way to gather. They've, they've probably been consistently going to the river to pray together. This small little church in Philippi that has started. And there's a demon-possessed girl who's a slave. And to be honest with you, she's being trafficked. We would call it trafficking in today's time. These people own her. They use her not for her benefit, but for their benefit giving her out to give oracles and to speak. And she just is possessed by this demon. And so the text says um, that she, they were met as they're going to pray by this slave girl. She had a spirit of divination and they brought, she brought her owners a lot of money. Now this interesting, this word divination is a Greek word called python. And so this demon that is inside her was connected to aspects of Greek mythology. Let me tell you the story. There's a story in Greek mythology where Apollo, who was the Greek god of music, poetry, and fine arts, had a battle against the python, called Python God, this, the, this god. And, and, and so what Apollo did is he, he had an oracle to kind of predict the future, and he was able to trick Python and give victory. And so the Greeks began to worship this as a matter of fact, not far from Philippi, 2,000 years ago, in this very area of Europe that we are talking about, there was a shrine to the Pythian Apollo that was based upon the story where the Greeks would gather and they would worship. And inside this girl is a demon that is connected to that lie of that false god. And I tell you, the world in which we live in does not have any kind of notion of what we believe in and what we affirm today. And there's so much confusion of that. And it's interesting that you see in the text here, and we even see it um, in our day and time as well, where many people just say, just let people alone. Let them do whatever they want to do. No. Notice this. In Philippi, nobody had an issue of the trafficking and using. The, the Greek word here is girl, not woman. So she's very young and she's possessed by a demon. And people are using her for their own benefit. I tell you, look at our world today. Um, they've just come out with some new statistics about what is happening and taking place in human trafficking. Um, they say, those who work in this field, that today, the Super Bowl Sunday, is the most heavily human trafficked day in our country. Some of the new statistics say this, that every two minutes in our country, a child is bought every two minutes. A child in America is bought and sold for sex every two minutes. Hundreds of young girls and boys, some as young as nine, that they have rescued are being bought and sold for sex as many as 20 times a day. Some of those are getting rescued out of that and telling the stories. And so, again... This is what's happening in Philippi. What does Philippi need? Why is there somebody in Paul's vision say, come over here and help us? Because evil was taking place in the streets. 
Freedom only comes when the gospel comes. And so this, this vision that Paul sees, and now they go and they begin to share, and Satan is a disruptor. So, so here's what happens next. Look, look what the text says there in verse 19, or um, uh, verse 17. So she followed Paul and us, and this is what she did. She cried out saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So we see here, secondly, that there's a proclamation happening in the city of Philippi. One, this demon-possessed girl is going, these guys that have come, they're servants of the Most High God. They're proclaiming the way of salvation. And day after day, she's doing this. It says that she does this for many days. Now, we don't know why Paul doesn't deal with it on the first day. We have no idea. But we know this, that she's proclaiming information about them. And when she says these words, they proclaim to you the way of salvation. What does that tell us that Paul and the missionary team were doing? They were proclaiming. They were telling the story in the city of Philippi about Jesus. She's broadcasting to everybody, look who's come to our city to tell you about the Most High God. These servants have come to do that, and they're telling about the way of salvation. Now we know she's possessed, so who's behind all of this? Satan. He's trying to disrupt. He is a disruptor. And so she's proclaiming, the missionary team is proclaiming the truth of the gospel in the city. And this is the second thing about worshipers. We proclaim, we tell that Jesus is the one who rescues us. That brings us to the third thing. So she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, it says here, became greatly annoyed in verse 18. Now, let me, we can all relate to this, okay? Because all you people here did this to your parents. This is not an annoyance where you're on a trip and how much further gets asked a hundred times. Or when's dinner going to be ready? It's not that kind of annoyance. This Greek word here for um, greatly annoyed means this. It means to labor through something. To be burdened because of someone's provocation of their life or their speech. Or it's a grieving as you look at a situation or you look at somebody's life that makes you grow tired. This is a righteous indignation that Paul has. He's gotten to a point where he has deep sorrow for the girl. He knows what's happening to her by the people that own her. He knows what she must be tormented by to be possessed by a demon. And so Paul just stops and he speaks to the demon. And the demon leaves the girl. And it came out of her that very hour. So here's the third point about the worshiper. The worshiper experiences the power of God in their lives. And we have this in us. We've talked about this this weekend, the students. The power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of us. So we do have the power to yield to God, to say no to temptation, and to continue to walk with Him. And so Paul demonstrates here, as they've come to worship and they've come to establish that, that there is a power that is connected to the worshiper. Well, here's the fourth thing. So this, the owners naturally of the girl are like, okay, all of our money, all of our way to make money is now gone. So look at verse 19. Let's read through 21. But when her owners saw that their hope for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said this, these men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept our practice. So, would you go back to Acts chapter 8 just for a second? Keep your finger there. Go back to Acts chapter 8. I want to show you something. Go to Acts 8, verse 3. But Saul, this is Paul here, 
was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Note that word, dragged off. Now go back to Acts 16. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and what did they do to them? They dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. I want you to note this. This was Paul's practice. This word dragged means not where you come along and you grab somebody by the arm and you kind of guide them out the door or something like this. This literally means drag, that they were knocked to the ground and they were grabbed by their feet and they were dragged. So Paul practiced this in Acts 8 to the Christians before he became a believer. Then he meets Jesus in Acts chapter 9. He's thrown from his horse, he's blinded, he's waiting. A guy named Ananias comes and God tells Ananias, when you get to Paul, here's what I want you to do, Ananias. I want you to tell Paul and inform him that I'm going to tell him how much he's going to have to suffer for my name. And this began to be the case. And so what Paul originally did in Acts chapter 8 now happens to him in Acts chapter 16. He is literally grabbed by his feet by the people there that are upset and he is dragged to the city square. This is called the Agora. If you've ever been to Europe before, there's a marketplace that is there in the center of the city. There would be near a place where the magistrates would gather, um, decisions would be made, the marketplace would be there. It was kind of the happening spot of the city center. So they dragged Paul and Silas to the very middle of the city to this place there. And again, this is Acts chapter 9, verse 16. It says this, that God says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul dragged people. Now Paul is being dragged. He's called before a group of people called the praetors or the magistrates. They were there in every Roman city that they had captured. Usually it was just a couple of guys and they made the major decisions for the city. And so they are brought to these men because they're the kind of the final authority on any kind of legal matter. So they're brought to that place. It's also possible that one of the things that they're upset about Paul is, is Emperor, Emperor Claudius in Acts chapter 18 had declared that he wanted every Jew out of Rome. And so a lot of Jews that were living in Rome, they had to leave that and they had to go other places. It's possible in Philippi they'd heard about what Claudius had said. And so there was a kind of a, a racism in a sense, a hatred toward the Jews because of what Claudius had been there. But they go before the magistrates and the, the owners of the girl, the said these men are Jews and they are disturbers of our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to practice these things. So there's a bit of a racial component connected to this. They, they are called disruptors and disturbers. And they, they say they're pushing for customs that are outlawed. Here's what happened in the Roman world. If the Roman Senate didn't approve something about worship and something in the kingdom, you couldn't do it. It was outlawed. So as they come and like, okay, these guys are talking about this Jesus guy and this resurrection and they're proclaiming this. And this is not even lawful. This has not been approved by the Roman Senate about anything. And so they were right about that. And so as they bring them for them, it's like these guys are talking about stuff that is against our customs. And here's the reality. When the gospel comes upon a life, when the gospel comes upon a student ministry, when the gospel comes upon a nation, a people, a family, it stirs the place up. And so here's this thing where everybody in the city of Philippi was okay that people who were owning this girl, now (coughs) she's free. And I know this to be true about the Apostle Paul. Do you think when the demon left her, that he said, well, I'm not going to tell her about Jesus. What do you think? You, th- you think he told her about Jesus? You better believe he did. So she would have been free to this demon. And I think there's no doubt he would have gone up to her. Silas would have gone up to her. Luke, Timothy, and they would have shared with her. They would have loved on her. And they would have figured out a way, how do we help her move forward now in her life? What they had been seeing in the city of Philippi was not going to happen again. This girl was free. Free in Jesus. And Jesus can just sweep up a place. He can sweep up our lives. 
and bring the change that is needed in our hearts. So the crowd joins in. Look at verse 22. So the crowd joined in and attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So now we're looking at the persecution of the worshiper that's here. So they tear the garments off them, and it's publicly. They would have left their undergarment on, their underwear, and that's all that would have been there. And they're getting them ready for what's called scourging. So they gave orders for them to be beaten with rods. So left over from my Christmas ornaments, I have a snowman stand that I put um, a three-quarter inch rebar there to drive in the ground. And I, it's a wooden snowman, and I tie it with ropes that it's there. And I've left that in there. As I walked out the door this morning, I looked over at it, and I thought that's about, if you know what a piece of rebar is that they use, that's kind of what they used on Paul and Silas. So Rome would do this. They would strip them of their clothing, and then they would begin to beat them from their shoulders down to their ankles. It was a very brutal thing. Um, those who did this were people called lictors, and they were ordered by the magistrates, and they were kind of a police force for the magistrates. And they would use hard sticks, things of iron, and they would um, inflict as much punishment as possible upon the people. Jews had a legal law that said you couldn't beat someone over how many times? Y'all remember? Okay, they, they could go up to 39. If you went to 40, it was too much. Rome didn't have a law like that. You could beat somebody as much as you wanted to, and these people were professionals at it. Sometimes people died when they were beaten with the rods, um, and so these guys, sometimes they, they, they would get in trouble if they went too far because that was just an initial punishment for some of those, but this is what happens and takes place. And so Rome had no existing law in regard to the amount of blows that could be given. Listen to this. This rod beating caused internal bleeding, broken ribs, crushed vertebrae, torn muscles, organs were damaged. Later, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to what Paul says. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. And three times I was beaten with rods. Sometimes those who deeply love Jesus, and they know that they are kept by Jesus, they know that they are secure by Jesus, and they love Jesus... They will not recant. They will not do anything. They will just continue to love Jesus. And sometimes those who deeply love Jesus will be betrayed. They will be beaten. And they will be behind bars. And they have not done anything wrong. Why are they in Philippi? Because the Spirit of God in a vision told Paul, Come to Macedonia. Come here. They're there by the will of God. They're not out of the will of God. And if you have a titch in your body, in your mind, about the prosperity gospel, this text should crush that. This is the Apostle Paul, who his whole life suffered, and yet was probably and possibly one of the most unique humans who lived a blessed life in the midst of all the suffering that he experienced. And here's why. Because suffering has a way of, of moving us to have a deep love for Jesus. This story wrecks this idea of prosperity gospel. These guys are sold out. They are on mission, getting about to get a beating and an imprisonment. And yet God is able in moments like that to sustain his people, to empower his people. So the text now says that they threw them in prison. Now this Greek word throw in prison, um, I, I tried to think of an illustration that everybody could relate to. 
Okay, when May gets here, the crickets and the June bugs are going to be around. And they're going to be in the house. When you get a June bug and a cricket, do you take it outside and gently lay it down on the ground so that it can be free? Does anybody do that? Well, if you are, you're weird, okay? <clears throat> Here's what the rest of us do. We open the door, and what do we do? We fling them, right? We just cast them with no care and no regard. And yes, God makes June bugs and crickets. I know that, okay? I know that. But they're not supposed to be in our house living with us. So when the text says that they threw them in prison, it's, a, it's exactly what we do with June bugs and crickets. So now you've got Paul and Silas, let's say after 50 whacks with the rod, their shoulders are bleeding, it's running down into their sandals, they are forced to walk from the praetorium that's there now to the prison and now they're just cast into the prison that's there. They're suffering from terrible pain. Their backs, legs, probably still bleeding. They're put into the innermost part of the prison. It's entirely dark there. Chains were often fastened to the wall. Um, sometimes there were stocks that were down on the ground and sometimes the stocks were this. If you would picture like a 2 by 12 with holes in it, and you may have you've seen that and that you put the feet there and you're, you're, they were forced to lay down on the ground. But the Romans invented, they've, they've discovered this now in some archaeology, Rome liked to do this. They liked to get wooden things like that, and instead of having them where you were forced to lay down and your feet out in front of you, they liked to have those boards flat, and they would drill holes in them, and, and some of the holes would be like this, and then they began to spread the legs out and put them in different holes, and then like this. And so if this is the case with Paul and Silas, as they get into the inner part of the prison and their legs are there, and they're tired, it's been a long day, a lot of beating, and their legs are this way. What happens if you um, just encourage you to go home and stand that way for just 10 minutes, your legs will begin to shake. And so here they are, exhausted, legs in stocks. They're in the inner part of the prison. These are horrible circumstances, and yet God had not failed them one bit. And they're going to give us evidence that God had not failed them in just a moment. Sleep would have been impossible and their body would have wanted to go to sleep. Just tired and exhausted. The stench of the prison was terrible. Inside the inner place of the Roman prison, you would have rats, lice, disease. Um, they didn't get potty breaks. Um, so they would have existed not only in their own filth, but also from those up above them, from the filth of those that are above them. You didn't want to be in the inner part of the prison. And in their evangelism, they, didn't, they weren't real careful as they came to Philippi. They just were going to live for Jesus. He was going to be the passion of their lives. They weren't worried about offending people because they knew that, that people in Philippi needed to know about Jesus. And so... This is where they are. If you're taking notes today, up on the screen, there's four things that you really need to write down. And I'm just going to briefly go over them real quick. Andrew Murray, you may have heard of him. Um, he's a great author, um, pastor, writer. He said, there are four anchors that we ought to remember in our lives when suffering comes for our faith, the suffering for our faith. Here's the first one. We need to tell ourselves... This, that I am here by God's appointment, for God brought me here. So sometimes we, those who are suffering persecution, have to remind themselves of that. That I'm here by God's appointment. This is where God wants me in this moment. Secondly, he says this. Here's the second anchor. I am here in his keeping, so therefore God will grant unto me the grace and love to live as his child in the midst of this persecuting moment. Thirdly, he said the third anchor that we, that suffering Christians need to remember is this, is that I am here under his training, for he has many lessons he intends for me to learn. 
Fourthly and lastly, Murray says that we need to have this idea that I am here for his time, for he will bring me out of the suffering when he is ready, or he will keep me in the suffering as long as he wants me to be there. It's interesting. Somebody might say, Paul, why don't you just go into cities and be calm? You know, just don't get yourself in trouble. Well, that's not an option. And so, you know, Paul, be quiet. You know, just be a little more strategic about what you do. And when the Spirit's moving, you can't really be strategic because you got to join what the Spirit is doing. It's interesting. He was in prison a lot. He says that far more imprisonments. Later on, he's in prison in Rome. And he writes back to the Philippians who knew that he was in prison when he was there. And so let me, let me read this text. So Paul is writing back to them. And, and oh gosh, I, I wish and I hope. Will you pray for me and I'll pray for you? I, I want one day to have this kind of faith. Do you? So now he's continued his missionary journeys he eventually gets out of the Philippian jail, but he gets arrested again. He's in Rome this time. He writes back to the Philippian church and listen to the language, what he says. This is Philippians 1, 12 through 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, my brothers in Philippi, Lydia, demon, former demon-possessed girl, Philippian jailer, I want you to know that what has happened to me to be in prison has really served to advance the gospel. He's not sad about it that he's in prison, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So it didn't stop them from proclaiming. It actually encouraged them. Do you know where the... Do you know where the, the gospel is exploding on the earth today? In countries where believers are persecuted. That's where the gospel is thriving today. If he didn't know this, the thriving awakening of the church and the gospel is moving from the west to the east. Places like Iran. From what we understand that's going on in the country of Iran is this unbelievable awakening of God, of the people there to the gospel. And so here, Paul is just saying, I'm in prison again, guys. I love y'all. Um, writing this letter to you. But don't worry. God's working this out. I'm sharing Christ and everybody in the imperial guard in the palace in Rome that's connected to Caesar. They're hearing about the gospel. So Paul got what Andrew Murray was talking about there. Just a couple more things and we're finished today. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. I can't even imagine what they went through physically and I... It's even harder to imagine their response. Incredible. Now, if you remember Acts chapter 16, verse 9, in a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man in Macedonia was standing urging him to say, come over to Macedonia and help us. Or there could have been a moment in Paul and Silas's life where like, did we hear that right? Were we really supposed to come over here? Because see, we American Christians, we're so smart in 2023. God would never want us to suffer and be persecuted. See, God's about comfort in the West for Christianity. We have no clue about this reality. But God had indeed called them to Philippi. He had called them to be there. See, sometimes perfect obedience leads to a great persecution. And walking in obedience to God, people are coming to faith Paul brings the gospel to a new continent. And if they were not men who had learned to know God's voice 
and to embrace His voice. They, they might have said something like this. Was it really the call of the Spirit that we heard in that vision? Maybe I just had a crazy dream that night. How, how can we testify in a place like this, this prison? Should we have not have remained in Asia and not come to Macedonia? But I just want to remind you of this. God's sheep know His voice. And when He calls them, they're obedient and they go. And so at midnight, and there's no way that they can find any place to find any kind of comfort, any way to sleep, with all that they've gone through, they are in stocks, their legs are cramping. In that moment, you have a decision to make. How do you live faithfully to Jesus in a moment like that? When you can't find comfort, even if you tried to imagine it, you can't find it. Is Christ worth it at midnight in a Philippian jail with wounds all over your body? Well, Tertullian probably succinctly wrote about Acts 16, 25 perfectly. This is what he wrote. He said, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when your heart is in heaven with Jesus. And that's where they were in that moment. You see, the heart sings in a setting like this because it has already found the greatest treasure. And in this moment, Paul and Silas were not looking for Jesus as if, where are you? They knew he was there closer than their breath. And I tell you, This is one of Mike's favorite words when we go on mission trips. This is a moment where you could easily whine. And say, unfair. But I'll tell you this, there is never a wrong time to worship. But there is a wrong time to whine. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody's life in the history of the world improved by whining? Whining doesn't lead to winning. And if you're stuck in a cell right now, worship. Worship. There is nothing in their current circumstances in that side of that cell that said that they could find anything that deemed worthy to set the setting for worship. And I just picture this. It's dark, it smells, they're in pain, their, their bodies are cramping, they're probably cold. They're wondering about, is this it? Do we survive this one? And Paul just begins to go, How great is our God. Silas, sing with me. How great is our God. And oh, see how great, how great is our God. And they just start singing. And the text says that the prisoners up above them, because they're in the down below, are like, what? There's What? Not cussing going down below there? Singing? And they just worship. And as we peer into this worship service of two, notice the God-centeredness of their worship. Jesus was enough in that moment. And they were not having a hard time finding him in the darkness of the cell. They didn't fix their eyes on circumstances. For in them there was nothing worthy of praise in the circumstances. But Jesus was present and they fixed their eyes on him. And I tell you, you can worship in a manner like this when you know that God never changes, regardless of the moment, regardless of what we are experiencing. So notice the God-centeredness of their worship. Secondly, notice the simplicity of their pure worship. Nothing is needed but a heart alive to Jesus to worship him. 
Notice what is not is not in, not is not not present. That's critical for our brand of Christianity. Paul didn't turn to Silas and say, "Do you think somebody could come down here with a guitar so we could sing?" Think we could get some AC down here? Some vans? Some comfortable blue chairs? Could, could, we, could we do this like at 10 o'clock in the morning instead of at midnight? It's a little easier. They could have said, you know, it smells too much in here to worship. It's too hot in here. It's too dark in here. Where's the fog machine going to come in and pull things off for us? Where are the lights? Where's the people to kind of get us going, you know, to make it all exciting? See, they teach us you don't need any of that. You just need a heart alive that recognizes how amazing is it that we have been redeemed by the King of the universe. We are kept by Him and He never leaves us alone. And we can find Him in the most painful moments, in the most brightest moments. He, we are never left alone. And, and so here, here they are just worshiping. They don't turn to each other and go, gosh, if my minister, if my parents would just be like this, then I'd be more into church. If my wife, my husband, if my this, if this were better, then boy, I'm, I'll, boy I'll step into deep walking with God in faith. They didn't have any of that. They have any of that to clothe themselves with. Their posture was just legs that were trembling and their hearts just lifted up to the greatness of Jesus in the room. See, they had learned that the presence of the sovereignty of God impacts the worshiper and they know that God is present with them in every moment. Notice thirdly, the deep, confident trust that they have in God's sovereignty. They weren't whining. They were singing. Not whining. They were worshiping. And I believe the Spirit-filled life will have a song in the heart. And the Spirit gives a song. And if you are Spirit-filled, we will have a song in our heart. And even with the song in our heart, you can still have trouble. Fourthly, note the deep, deep, intimate knowledge, I think, of His Word that's there. They didn't come up, try to go back to any, any text of the Old Testament, anything that was being write, written in the current day to, to find some excuse why this should not be happening. They just embrace it, and then they would later write of it. Listen to these great things that Paul would later write, and I think probably connected to what we read here. We sang a song a while ago. We, we sung it two weeks in a row. It's one of the songs that I have on repeat. There's another one. That one's by Shane and Shane. That one, I'm fighting a battle. There's another one they have now that talks about the merit of Jesus. So we're going to add that to our, our singing part that's here that's just incredible. But that's biblical. When, when, in, that, in that song, in case you're wondering, that kind of doesn't sound right where it says, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. That, that's humanity. And Paul wrote about it. Listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. God, what are you doing? But not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but never forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. You see, we are always carrying in the body, our body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake and His glory, so that the life of Jesus that's raised us may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. This is one of my favorite texts. And so just a little bit later, after Paul writes that in 2 Corinthians 4.8, if you go down to verse 16, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, therefore, we don't lose heart. You see, our outer self is wasting away. But our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
So li- listen, to this, listen to this perspective. Paul says, he says this, For this light, 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 easy, momentary affliction is preparing for us, getting us ready for this reality, an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. This life here is yuck at times, is it not? And it's preparing for us this reality, this heavy weight that one day He will wipe every tear from our eyes. Our bones won't hurt. Cancer will not be around. And we will live in the weight of the eternal weight of the glory of God. And so Paul is saying this this stuff that we go through here, it's just for a brief amount of time, and it's getting us ready for the heaviness of the awesomeness of the glory of God that we will live in. And so then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, So therefore we look to the things not that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they just pass away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And I tell you what Paul and Silas do and what Paul writes there just tells us this. We must get our minds upon God who is above everything. and We must do it with, with every bit of our being. It's the only way we can have the worldview that we need to maintain our faith. Well, look at the next part of verse 25. The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. You see, when we practice worship, not singing, we practice living, Faithfully in the world, there is an observation that happens as people look at our lives. Can you imagine being a hardened criminal, sleep up in a jail cell in Philippi, being awakened by Christ-centered worship? You never heard of this guy, Jesus? The gospel hadn't gotten to Europe yet. They must have been stunned hearing what was going on. Church, hear this as we finish up. To the non-Christians, most of them have no desire today to look at our doctrine. But I'll tell you what they will do. They want to peer into our life to see if what we profess matters and has application and we're actually living it out. And eventually they'll come to faith. We know that. And there'll be some... But they they want to see if what we sing about today and what we preach about today makes any difference on a Tuesday afternoon or in a hospital room? Do we really believe it? And I love this. Acts chapter 16 is so beautiful. Sometimes God just opens a heart like Lydia's, like a flower opens during the daytime in the spring, and they believe. Sometimes God's power frees people who are demonically possessed and they become in their right mind and then for some of us we need an earthquake and for the Philippian jailer that's what he needed Roman jailers lived connected to the jail wasn't a bad occupation but it wasn't a highly respectable occupation and most of them were pretty hardened men I love math. Did you know that? I don't love math. I love, I love math and don't love math. I've told you this to you before, but I'm in kind of English history kind of brain. My dad was originally a school teacher before he became my principal, and he was a science teacher, and I don't have a math science brain at all. As much as he tried, God bless him for all of his efforts. It didn't um, pan out. But I love math, and I love math for this reason. My junior year of high school, I needed to stay eligible to play basketball, and I was not doing well in something called Algebra 2. And I needed help. So one of my basketball teammates had just moved to our school, 
my junior year, and he became my tutor. And he got me through algebra too. And while I, I'll be honest with you, I'm just thankful for calculators, and I don't, I don't know why I ever needed to take math. I just need a calculator. That's all I need. I'm 57. I just need a calculator. I need nothing else but a calculator. But I'm thankful for algebra too because I'm standing before you this morning because of it. Because he tutored me, I became a believer at the end of that year because of his influence upon my life. And so while I don't like math, and I'm glad some of you do, I love math and the weakness that I had of it because God used it to get me into his kingdom. So sometimes we look at our lives and we just think, I'm such a failure at this. And what we need, we will, you will look back on this, students, when you're older. You'll look back and go, those things that we so struggle with, God was in those all the time, doing something that we couldn't even imagine. Well, the Philippian jailer comes to faith. He's about to commit suicide. He comes in and all... If, all your, if you're a jailer and all your prison doors are open, that's not a good thing. You know what's amazing about that? Nobody left their cell. Not Paul and Silas and not anybody else in the jail. But he doesn't know that yet. It's dark. And he's got a dagger. And he's about to thrust it into his chest. It's going to be over for him. <laughs> oh, God, it's so funny. Paul just hollers out in the darkness, do not harm yourself. We're all here. And he must have been going, what are you talking What? What? And he came to Paul and Silas and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, you got to believe on Jesus Christ whom we've come to your city telling people about. I would have loved to have been a member of this church in its earliest days. You've got Lydia and her whole household. You've got a former demon-possessed girl. And you've got a hardened, former hardened jailer who's come to faith and his whole house has come to faith. What a cool church. Now, sorry people, bye, on the TV they want to see me, they should come to church. <clears throat> Look around this room. Look around this room. I think the Philippian church in its early days, what, can you imagine those stories and testimonies and learning that Paul was doing teaching them? But then I just thought last night, and I thought about us, I thought there's going to be, look at the people in this room, look at our histories. God just redeems people. And he does it because of the glorious work of the gospel. And students, we have talked about this all weekend. And the challenge now is, what are you going to do with all of this information that we've looked at the text? That God's got you, that you're his, he delights in you, he's equipped you to be used. There's great potential, great possibilities for you. And I can't make it happen for you. Your parents can't make it happen for you. But I know this, that he who raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. And you have the power that you need to make a difference in this world for the glory of God. One of the students came up last night and was really moved. I went home and told my wife and and, and just came up to me last night and said, um, thank you for having this this weekend. I have never experienced anything like this before. And I, there were a couple of them that said that. Um, this is why you invite your friends. Ten of them will say, I don't want to go to church, but one will. And it's worth it for the one. It's worth it for the one. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do 
with the glorious reality that God made you and has a purpose for you. All you old people, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What am I going to do? I think it's time that we live with a heart alive that exalts Jesus no matter what. That's what Paul and Silas would say. It's worth it. We found a treasure that rods can't take and magistrates can't touch. Let's pray.